This episode is dedicated to Jason Perez for becoming our newest Southpaw supporter and helping to make this project possible. Voyage across the Gooniverse. It's Southpaw Deep Space Nine. Uh, welcome everybody to this show where I, Angel Marti, uh, guide our intrepid uh, hero, Southpaw Sam, on his journey into Star Trek fandom, where we watch every episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine and we analyze the political and cultural messages in each episode, both overt and covert from a uh, left-wing perspective. Sam, how you doing this week? Yeah, I don't want to date when this is being <laughs> recorded, but let's just say... Bullshit is happening. Yes. And uh, there's a lot of anxiety. I have a lot of anxiety right now about uh, nuclear war and all of us dying. Let's, let's hope this is outdated by the time people are listening to this. How about that? Like, <laughs> yeah, I hope whoever's listening to this, let's say you're listening to this like years later, I hope your feeling isn't like, oh, was this just recorded last week? Because that's my anxiety right now. <laughs> please, people in the future, please be in a better place than where we are now. Yes. Or aliens, if you're listening to this, then this is what happened. That's why you have to learn about us through podcast recordings instead of directly talking to us. When the gold record with this podcast gets floats through the wormhole into the Gamma Quadrant. Yes. So as you can tell from uh, some of the references I've made, uh, today's episode is Season 1, Episode 11, Vortex, which for some reason immediately made me think of some kind of cool Super Soaker product, but I guess that's just because watching a show from 1993 immediately puts me in 90s nostalgia mode. So let's uh, let's jump into it. Let's let's head, dive headfirst into the vortex. So we open uh, in Quark's bar, which uh, I just always like how opening Quark's bar allows for things to sort of start in medias res and still uh, fit in uh, expositional dialogue. Because like somebody unwinding at a bar is a place where people will just sort of recount the events of the day that have that have uh, happened previously it's it makes sense for people to be like oh man this thing just happened which is like they don't really do that at other times but here we see odo uh again harassing a simple local businessman uh but uh telling telling quark that he noticed that there is a miradorn ship uh docked at the station that they are uh, a Miradorn raider. That probably means uh, shady business, which means Cork will probably be involved. But then they also both notice uh, that there is a suspicious uh, alien from the Gamma Quadrant also sitting in the bar that keeps avoiding eye contact with them. Uh, turns out his name is uh, Croden. Charles Croden. No, just Croden. Uh, but I just, the, the opening scene. I was just noticing how like there is this interesting tension between Quark and Odo where it's like 
adversarial but cooperative at the same time. It's like Odo, uh, Quark is obviously involved in illegal activities. Odo knows. Quark knows. Odo knows. But Odo would rather sort of, instead of just throwing Quark in jail permanently, he just sort of allows Quark to exist for the sake of being his informant about whatever criminal element passes through the station. And thinking back to like Move Along Home, it's like Quark, we've seen that Quark gets thrown under the bus and held like, you know, responsible for shit. Uh, But he hasn't been penalized to the point of not even, of not like being able to operate his business. Like he's still running the bar. So it just makes me think like, what is the real nature of Odo's power as a like, security officer towards Quark and his bar or like is it in Odo like does does Odo really have the power to stop uh you know to just shut Quark down is it really in his best interest to shut Quark down is it sort of like you it seems to be a like a, a trope of police shows that like you sort of have to have this like fear of a criminal underworld that you allow to exist like if you're a cop if you're like of the law enforcement you know side of things you have to have this sort of sphere of permitted you know criminal underworld as a way to get like as as a way to have access to like the unpermitted so during the scene uh we uh have some dialogue that reemphasizes that as far as any, as far as we know the audience knows Odo is the only one of his species that we've ever seen or that anyone's seen because Quark calls attention to the fact that you know uh Croden is another alien from the Gamma Quadrant who's completely isolated. So it turns out that that Odo's suspicion is correct uh, that the Miradorn are here to make a deal with Quark about selling some kind of Fabergé egg-like thing. Uh, But uh, Quark says the buyer backed out because the merchandise is possibly stolen. Uh, But then in the middle of the deal, Croden shows up and interrupts uh, the sale to take the egg at phaser point. And I noticed that uh, that Croden had had this sort of... uh, He's played by Cliff DeYoung, who was uh, apparently a a uh, former rock singer turned art turned uh, actor, but uh, he sort of has a Jesse Eisenberg esque performance of Crowd in this sort of like sort of sarcastic but very low key kind of like I'm in an action scene, but you know what? I'm just gonna be sort of uh, 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 cute and coy about it. But um, it turns out that Odo was doing his entrapment again, and he was hiding as one of the glasses, liquor glasses during and during the uh uh during the whole transaction and he uh reconstitutes himself and then he stop he he's able to uh apprehend Croden but not before he fires a phaser and kills one of the two Miradorn there. So it seems like with Odo's ability to shapeshift, then he doesn't have to shapeshift into something that is the same scale as himself, right? He could become something smaller. Yeah, it doesn't have to be the same volume. But like, I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's just becomes very dense glass. <laughs> I mean, I can, I can see like, you know, conceivably under the laws of physics, you know, it's just if he is, if he's able to change the shape into something with a smaller volume, he just has to become very, very, very dense. I mean, we don't even know what his ambient density is in his humanoid form. Like maybe when he makes himself, t- maybe if he makes himself taller, he's even like, you know, 
uh, he becomes like memory foam or something. But then Rob picked it up like nothing, right? He would have noticed the weight difference. And then later in the episode, there is a line about how heavy Odo is. Yeah, I think there's some, I think like there ended up being some kind of explanation about like, changelings being able to store some of their mass in subspace or something there there's definitely some kind of like and then there's the comms badge it's it's again it's one of those things like where the physics isn't like fully thought out but then like after the fact you can kind of have like a a a techno babble sort of justification (laughs) for it so we find out that uh you know beyond just like plain old murder uh the fact that Crodin killed uh, one of the Mirrodorn is uh, even worse because apparently the two Mirrodorn were twinned and in their species, uh, the twins share some kind of uh, symbiotic relationship where like if one of them dies, the other is now uh, like physically harmed and, you know, defeat, depleted by it. And we learn that the one that's still alive, his name is Akel. And uh, even though uh, Memory Alpha says uh, that the dead one's name is Rokel, I've decided since he's not named on screen that his name is Akinan. And if anybody has a problem with that, uh, I don't care. But uh, so now we have another, you know, blood oath going on here where uh, Akel is definitely uh, uh, determined to murder Crodin. But now as he is Odo's prisoner, Odo has to make sure that... uh, uh, that that doesn't happen. But uh, he, Odo, I mean, Odo at the same time also arrests Quark. And he, arre- and even though uh, Quark set, you know, has done nothing illegal that, uh, under Odo's actual observation slash entrapment, you know, during the sale, he did refuse to sell, uh, he, he did refuse to participate in the buying of something because it was stolen merchandise. Uh, he does, Odo has a suspicion that because Crodin had, number one, had a Ferengi phaser, and two, knew the precise location of the sale, that maybe Quark set up Crodin to do this. So, Sisko and Odo confront Crodin, and uh, they let him know that there will be a trial for his crime of killing uh, Akinan, and that he can request an advocate, uh, either an advocate can be provided to him or he can request one from his homeworld. But apparently on a uh, Croton's homeworld of Rakar, as he says, quote, all crimes are serious. Only there are no trials. So no luck getting an advocate there. But uh, during the questioning, Croton lets slip that uh, in reference to Odo, that he's seen other changelings in the gamma quadrants. And this is the first time we see the word uh, changeling applied to Odo. Uh, it did. The word changeling has been used in the Star Trek universe before, but only as an episode of an of the original series. Uh, let's see, it's season uh, two, episode eight, The Changeling. Although in this uh, situation, it refers to uh, uh, an evil AI like robot deal. So this is the first time we uh, hear the word used as a generic to refer to shapeshifters of Odo's species. And so now... Odo, knowing that there might be other people like him, is uh, is uh, definitely captivated. The ops crew, uh, you know, all of the senior officers meet to deliberate how to handle this situation in uh, in in Cisco's office. And so uh, 
apparently they the Starfleet has not had first contact yet with uh, Croton's species and Dax remarks that maybe uh, homicide is a way to open up uh, diplomatic relationships is not a good idea. But I like how Kira is is like having dealt with a very like having having grown up in in a, in a violent society dealing with the Cardassians is the only one who immediately figures oh we have one of this species criminals probably you know that probably this species if they're so obsessed with law and order will probably be thankful that we've apprehended them and probably you know won't uh, won't be as so concerned with like you know diplomatic sensitivities like everybody else it is a uh, it, it goes to show how uh, cultural sort of mores can be informed by like the prevalence of like violence and scarcity versus like relative material comfort. And I like how Kira is always sort of the counterpoint to like how the more comfortable and uh, well taken care of Federation uh, views things. So here's uh, so then the, res- the they decide what's going to happen is that Cisco and Dax are going to leave the station personally on a runabout and go through the wormhole and look for the planet Rakar to make contact about this. And it made me ask this question. And as Sam, I kind of wanted to hear your thoughts on this, but like, should DS9 have some kind of specific diplomatic envoy team assigned to handle these kinds of situations instead of making the commanding officer have to leave the station? Like, it's times like this that I wish I kind of like was. I had like some phase in life where I was like, you know, obsessed with learning about like military history and operations. Like a lot of like people who grow up to be like chuds with Roman emperor avatars on Twitter, (laughs) because like, I want to know is like, is this how, like how often should a commanding officer actually leave the station that he's assigned to command? I, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying you might actually know this, but I'm just curious if you have the same question. I thought it was more the material conditions of this show that uh they're limited on budget so (laughs) basically i have noticed that a lot of things that uh star trek the next generation especially in the later seasons when they have more money like things that they would have extras do or like minor characters do in this one because they have to you know pull up their sleeves and uh, do more of it a lot of the main characters have to do a lot of those scenes i think just for those reasons yeah on, on the next generation they always made like a big deal of like okay the captain doesn't lead away missions like the first officer does that but uh but i guess yeah there's there's a kind of like a, an interesting confluence of like there can be the in-universe explanation of like oh ds9's like sort of this uh station on the frontier and thus isn't like fully staffed and and that, but, but also like just, it's more from a purely creative perspective, it's more interesting when elements of the plot directly involve the main characters. So it's, uh, it's, it's just a clever convenience that makes sense in universe. Not only is the show lower budget, but DS9 is also building up and they have a smaller budget. So yeah, to your point. They're not fully staffed, so they got to do a lot of it. The manager of the Burger King isn't making fucking burgers. Like, he's not the one frying fries, unless a bunch of people have called in sick. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod.
So speaking of burgers and fries, Odo returns to Quark's bar. I'm assuming Quark serves burgers and fries if you ask him to. That was just my attempt at a, at a segue. But he, uh, he returns to Quark's to like sort of question him about what the actual nature of his uh, relationship to Quark is. And during the course of his questioning, uh, Odo posits that maybe Quark was helping him broker uh, passage back to uh, helping Proden broker passage back to the Gamma Quadrant in exchange for uh, helping him with the Muradorn situation by staging the robbery. And I want to, this is, this is why you should watch uh, the episodes along with this podcast, if in case you're somebody who's just listening to this, because I think there's, uh, there's really cool cinematography during this scene that I wanted to comment on Uh, during. So uh, number one, like again, you know, I have an, I, I, I got an MFA in writing and producing for television. So like, this is going to, I'm going to nerd out about like, you know, clever, uh, tell, you know, production here, but number one, this seems very dynamic, even though it's like basically two people talking because Quark has given this business of like, you know, moving various, uh, little glasses and stuff from different areas of the bar. And so there are all these different shot cuts to different parts of the bar. And, but as they go to like the back room of the bar, uh, the lighting changes uh, where instead of going from this like, uh, you know, brighter sort of uh, overhead lighting in the main room of the bar, as Odo and Quark talk to each other more about, you know, what as like secrets are revealed, uh, you know, and inner motives are revealed, there's this sort of harsh under lighting of both Odo and Quark's face. And what I love is that uh, it sort of visually underscores the fact that during this exchange, Odo uh, starts pressing Quark about, you know, what's the truth of his uh, relationship with Crowley, but also he's really uh, starting to show his uh, fixation on finding out actual information about other changelings in the Gamma Quadrant. So we are learning about like the inside motives of both of these characters while they're uh, un they're like lit from underneath. I just think that if, if you want, if you want like a really good, um, you know, sort of like, I, I feel like this lesson, this whole episode is like a good lesson plan and like good screenwriting and cinematography. So definitely watch this episode. If you're an aspiring writer or filmmaker or whatever, just for, just for some good, like good storytelling. So then Odo returns to question Crowden. Uh, this is just like us following Odo ping-ponging between all the people that he's questioning. So uh, one thing that we see Crowden here is that uh, he sort of reacts to everything Odo does by trying to assign it as some kind of inherent uh, trait of uh, changelings, like being distrustful and suspicious of other uh, species and being harsh in their judgments. Like at at every point, like he's trying to pique Odo's interest about like his other species. Although I think there's an interesting uh, moment here where Odo like straight up threatens to kill Crowden for lying, which I feel like that's going far even for Odo. Like, I mean, like, you know, we've established here that like, you know, Odo is the, is like, you know, the actual is like a representation of the mythical liberal idea of the good cop and that he doesn't, you know, he doesn't escalate violence. He doesn't, he like, he tries to catch, catch people alive. You know, he doesn't carry a, a phaser, uh, you know, so like just, you know, whether, whether or not, you know, it's a realistic depiction, that's, that's an, a, an in real life, an IRL question. But 
as far as in the universe, like it's, this is new for us to see Odo like straight up, like threaten violence here because we see that things are starting to get uh, personal. But as proof uh, of, of, uh, of the fact that he's not lying, Croden produces this locket that he opens that's full of some changeling goop. Is it part of a changeling? Is it some kind of excretion? Did somebody hawk a Luki in his locket and now he keeps it as a, uh, as a souvenir? We don't know. So here, the question is raised of Odo's people being persecuted and genocided, which is also a very real thing of oppressed people who are disconnected from their own history and culture. But I don't want to read too far into this because we don't know whether Crodent is lying or not. Because this episode was so much about Odo's character development, I feel like a lot of the political things that I wanted to talk about was more like touched upon, but the narrator was unreliable. So I can't really like read too much into it other than just saying these questions were raised. Yeah, no, it is interesting that it's like that, you know, we learned that that according to Crodent, like not only... Not only, you know, are there more, not only are there more changelings in the Gamma Quadrant, but like they, be, they were sort of like uh, itinerant wanderers forced out of, you know, wherever they were living, you know, sort of like, like, you know, Jews in Europe or, or, or Roma people, like very much like, you know, either, either Croton is doing this intentionally or unintentionally just appealing to like, okay, not only are you not alone, but you're also like, you know, your isolation and feeling of alienation is something that sort of meshes with the larger story of your people. Part of the reason why I also felt even more unreliable is because it's like both this persecuted people, but then also paints them as this like law and order type of strong, like police type culture. So it's like, okay, (laughs) some of this doesn't fit, right? In some ways, they're like this Roman Empire sounding people. And then in some other ways, they sound like a people persecuted by the Roman Empire. So if they're all like Odo and they're all like cop-like, there's a lot of contradictory portrayals of them. Well, I mean, I think that calls into into question just how like, you know, history, like the way we are taught history, you know, is done through unreliable narrators. How we can have like, you know, depending on who's writing the history books, like different cultures can be depicted as either victims or victimizers. And we have to be you know, like the same way Odo ha- is suspicious of uh, Croton's story. Like we have to be, you know, critical of of uh, any stories that are given to us uh, that we don't experience for ourselves in terms of like constructing cultures, of other cultures and identities. It's almost like the noble savage mythos where it's like two contradictory ideas combined together, right? This peaceful, in tune, uncivilized people who are also like very quote unquote savage and can murder everybody. And even though these ideas contradict in the mind of the oppressors, it somehow still makes sense. Because they can, you know, they can find all the possible justifications for violence against them. Yes. But speaking of violence, so Dax and Cisco uh, finally, they find the planet Rakar and they make contact with uh, an official there. Uh, who immediately requests that Croden be returned so that he can be punished for the uh, myriad crimes for which he's been uh, declared guilty in absentia. Uh, and the whole situation makes Cisco feel icky in his tum-tum, but he agrees uh, to return that he did. they didn't have Croden with him at the time, 
uh, which was a smart move in case, in case like they were just going to be like, we're going to kill him now, but he does agree to uh, uh, extradite him. So it seems like at the same time that we are made to feel a little bit suspicious. I, I think this further uh, um, sort of uh, emphasizes that whole like, you know, different perspectives on what makes somebody trustworthy, untrustworthy. Because at the same time that we're, you know, shown that Croton is clearly, you know, has some kind of motive, is crafty or, you know, is is trying to employ some kind of guile with Odo. It's like we're also seeing that like the society in which he is supposedly criminal seems to just be a little bit of a, uh, you know, the trope of like, you know, the 1984 sort of like guilty until proven innocent authoritarian nightmare. Back on the station, Bashir examines the locket goop and finds it to actually be some kind of living matter that's of a composition between organic and inorganic. So that uh, it, it must be of some kind of nature similar to Odo. And during this round of, uh, of interrogation, Croton finally, uh, Cro- Croton's like very good at laying the trail of breadcrumbs because now that he's gained the trust of proving that the, uh, that the goop is, is, uh, is real, he reveals that there is a specific uh, colony of changelings hidden in an asteroid field inside a nebula called the Chamra Vortex. So now we are left to wonder, will Odo uh, be so tempted that he will finally start breaking the law, breaking the law, breaking the law? Uh, one, there is a line of dialogue here uh, when that I liked that uh, Cisco says specifically that uh, the Bajorans agreed to extradite uh, Croton uh, back to Rakar, and it, and, you know, the writers reminding us that it is, that it is ultimately the Bajoran's decision, and that you know it's still a cooperative thing. And because we got Kira's react, Kira is ultimately proven right uh, as far as her reaction, uh, and that sort of foreshadows this uh, this uh, decision. I just thought that was a nice little way to make sure everything makes sense. Um, but but so ultimately, ultimately, we have this awesome little dramatic web here that's woven, like like. So the first thing, first, Odo has to get Crodon off the station without Crodon getting murdered by Akel. But then he has to get him back to Rakar without giving into his own temptation to find the other changelings. And the fact that Crodon has that information is why Odo has a vested interest in not just letting Akel kill Crodon in the first place. So we have a situation where motives of everyone involved, clear. Stakes, clear. Conflict, clear. Like different kinds of outcomes possible. Like this is just nice, tight, dramatic writing. But uh, but I just when when contemplate here's here's where I, I I found like a nice bit of sort of like political philosophy here that I think we can delve into is that when we establish this dramatic web here, this episode uh, seems to posit, or at least I'm interpreting that this episode is positing that uh, Odo's commitment to like the law and justice. And all of that, which we see as sort of like, you know, the foundation of his personality is is just him using that as a substitute for having any other sense of identity or personhood. And that like the the commitment to those things all of a sudden becomes negotiable when he has this possible chance to like redefine himself as a member of a larger community or or species. Like, you know, it, it to me that relates to the whole idea that like you know, in, you know, in basic training, you know, for the, for the army, you're always supposed to like break people down, you know, and like separate them from any kind of personhood other than their uh, membership of the army and how like, 
you know, police are like, especially modern police are always like assigned to patrol, uh, you know, communities that they don't actually live in. And it just seems that like the desire for control and the commitment to hierarchy necessitates and comes from alienation. Yeah, I think there's a lot to chew on there. You have Marx, you have Sartre, where this idea of like these institutions that alienate you, where it's not just a feeling in your head, but it's like separating you from who you are as a person, your consciousness, right? So then you just become your job, you become your role, which is what Marx warned us about and, and Sartre mistaking yourself as your role, as your job as a constable or as like chief security officer is where Sartre calls bad faith, which is different from the way people normally talk about it. But it's like having this belief in yourself that isn't the real you. It's this uh, fake you, this job, this role that you've taken on to yourself, convincing yourself that it's you. Yeah. I will just, I will tangent a little bit here to elsewhere in the Star Trek universe, just because the Borg don't really factor into Deep Space Nine that much. But like, I just want to say it here. I think that's why, you know, there are so many like hacky jokes, especially from the 90s about how like the Borg are like, you know, oh, the Borg are a collective. They're a metaphor for communism. But it's like, no, the Borg are a perfect metaphor for capitalism, because while the Borg on the outside promise that your, quote, biological and technological distinctnesses will be added to our own. What happens when somebody's assimilated into the board collective is that they are stripped of all of their individual uh, distinctnesses and they are only reduced to their their labor output. You know, they are only their only things that they do is they work and they regenerate and they work and they regenerate and they assimilate like that is that that is just like a in put in much more explicit terms. How capitalism makes you commit to your job you know, and like your make, make your like what you do for as your like role as your defining characteristic by stripping you of everything else that could supersede that. I mean, it's about the factory system, which is all about capitalism. I mean, that is like the pride of capitalism, especially in its early foundation. And that factory system is what Karl Marx was studying to criticize capitalism. So it's like funny that the thing that the Borg represent the factory system, the system that Karl Marx was criticizing and saying was bad is the thing now that they're flipping around and saying, oh, the factory system, that's a communist thing, right? Well, then if that's a communist thing, then what is your thing? What is capitalism, right? The whole like emphasis was on productivity, not on happiness, right? This whole like work-life balance being about work and you're not supposed to have a life. So... Croton admits that he's like been a thief and a murderer or something, but he says like, perhaps this, that's how it started. Perhaps I asked one too, one question too many, like Croton's a joker meme before there were joker memes. But it, uh, in the middle of the night, Rakari security officers uh, snuck into his home to kill both of his wives because he was declared an enemy of the people. And uh, the punishment for that is to, ha- is to have your whole family killed. But here's what I love about this. Because talking specifically about, uh, you know, the fact that Croden was like legally considered a criminal uh, uh, by uh, by you know Ricari's by Ricard's legal system, but you know whatever his crimes were were not necessarily like crimes in like a, a universal moral sense. He's leaning on like Odo's sense of like justice as something that exists separate from the laws, you know, the systems of laws uh, that people write. 
He leans on Odo's sense of justice as well uh, as to make him like not want to potentially, you know, return him to the Rakari and like have him like summarily executed with no trial. So he's like he's psychologically attacking Odo from both ends, like 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 appealing to his sense of isolation and wanting to find community with other uh, uh, changelings, and then also like being like, "Hey, you love justice. If you take me back home, I'm not going to get justice." It's it's very masterful, like you know, manipulation, whether it's for good or bad end. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity, by supporting us, at patreon.com, slash, southpawpod. Because of this type of drama that they're writing, which goes back to the Greek days, I think we could be pretty confident that Croden is kind of a hat tip to Socrates. What did Socrates get in trouble for? Why is he a dissident? Because he asks a lot of questions. The whole thing back and forth was Socratic method, right? He was trying to get Odo to see that his sense of justice is different from the law. And he was trying to get him there through the Socratic method, through these questions and these what ifs and thought experiments and using his imagination. Well, considering the original Star Trek series had an episode with literal Apollo, I think it's always safe to like, you know, assume that if you see something that invokes the Hellenistic classical tradition in Star Trek, it's probably, it's probably intentional. So, uh, back on the station, uh, Akel, uh, the living Miradorn confronts Quark, uh, as he finds out that Croton is now off the station and, uh, he, uh, basically threatens Quark with some good old fashioned violence. And he, Quark agrees to find out where he's been taken using the same computer that he used back in Babel to find where the other replicators were. So we have it established that he's able to do this from, you know, basically the electronic Kino machine in his bar by use of these like security chips. So it's, you know, aftermarket mods. But, uh, but after, uh, after Akel leaves, Quark and Rom are, uh, are, sort of hoping that Akel manages to kill both Croden and Odo in one trip, so that way their involvement uh, in any kind of uh, uh, dealings with Croden won't get revealed. Uh, and, and, and Quark basically uh, uh, gambles that Odo won't, like, won't give up his prisoner when Akel demands it, so it's pretty certain that uh, there will be uh, uh, a firefight that ends with uh, them getting destroyed. So lots of different uh, interests riding on the outcome of this little road trip. So when Akel does catch up to the runabout, uh, Odo, uh, avoid, uh, Odo, of course, refuses. But uh, during the firefight, uh, they are conveniently close enough to the Chamra Vortex that they can pilot into it so that way the ionized gases of the nebula can block uh Akel's sensors and since they have to that since it's since it's best if they land on one of the asteroids uh so that way Akel can't pick up their impulse wake or their thruster discharge uh they're gonna go to the colony um but it turns out there's no changeling colony on the asteroid 
And Crowden thought that changelings were myths until he saw Odo. Uh, but then once he saw Odo on the station, he devised this brilliant escape plan. Technical aside here, with Star Trek, not necessarily just DS9, but Star Trek in general, do you ever have scenes where they're visiting like an asteroid or a colony or a planet where the characters have to wear some kind of helmet for oxygen? Yeah, a lot of the rules of Star Trek were, you know, in the original series, just sort of devised out of like a way to work within the budget. Like, uh, like uh, uh, they have artificial gravity, so that way we don't have to like show people <laughs> floating around. Or like, uh, you know, uh, every every species they, they like a class M planet is just a planet where everybody you know can breathe, so that way they don't have to wear spacesuits. I mean, there's sometimes where it's like if they're going into some area with like a hostile atmosphere, atmosphere they'll have like sort of respirator masks on. And then as we get to, especially um, in Voyager, um, after uh, Star Trek First Contact, when there is a scene in, in the movie Star Trek First Contact where they're walking around in spacesuits on the outside of the ship. And so like whenever there's opportunities that they can like reuse stuff that was made for the movies on the TV shows, you start seeing it more. So <laughs> there's, there's definitely, uh, that's why, especially because of the... Um, Borg figures so heavily into first contact, you start seeing way more Borg uh, in in uh, uh, Voyager after that because they have all of these costumes they can reuse. So same thing with like the spacesuits. I like that that the show is confined by the budget because that's how we all are. Everybody's broke, even Star <laughs> Trek. <laughs> but putting that aside, what I did like about the scene was again Socratic questions were raised. And this time it was about the question of dual violence. There's the violence of assimilation where basically you have to give up your culture and assimilate, which is one of the questions that Croden brought up with Odo, that he had to assimilate and give up who he really is, right? That he had to take on a shape and he's mistaking that shape in bad faith for his authentic self. So there's that. But then there's the other side of it where Croden also brings up that his people didn't assimilate and so that's why they were wiped out. So it's this dual violence of assimilation as violence. But if you don't assimilate, then you will also be wiped out. So there's a violence either way. For people like this, a persecuted minority or an indigenous people, there's a dual threat of assimilation where there's violence if you assimilate and violence when you don't. But we don't know what's myth and history here. So it's more, again, Socratic. It's just questions to think about. It's also something we have to think about in real life as well, something you brought up how we look at history, the standpoint of history. There's a whole school of philosophy called standpoint epistemology that thinks about this. So whose word do we take? Just like in real life, sometimes the only person telling any version of this history or truth is an unreliable narrator. So what do you do when the only person telling you about this is unreliable, which is very prescient and important to think about especially now in the time of social media where this happens all the time. What, what, we do, what we do decide, I guess, as the audience is that, you know, there are some aspects that are true about Croden's story and we just have to cling to that. So what we do find is on this asteroid that they've uh, uh, landed on is uh, Croden's daughter in a stasis chamber. Yes, instead of getting uh, the wife getting fridged, we have the daughter in a fridge. Uh, and the little locket full of changeling snot is just uh, basically a little key. Like you can shape, form the shape into a key. But because 
because Bashir did analyze it and say that it is living matter, like, you know, we have to take that as true and we can still use it as a, hopefully in the future, we can still figure it out as a clue. So they are able to get um, uh, Croden's daughter out of the box and onto the shuttle. Uh, and, uh, but then there's like a cave in as uh, Akel tries to attack the asteroid. And then we learn that despite being made of goop, Odo can apparently still get knocked out by a falling rock. Uh, I looked at Memory Alpha and like even the page of Memory Alpha says like, yeah, future uh, sort of developments of Odo and Changeling should so show that like this kind of injury shouldn't really be a problem to them. I just think I just think that, you know, if, if this had been like a sh- if this had been produced now, uh, uh, with better special effects, uh, he should have been like struck on the head by a rock and then like just been walking around with like a giant divot in the middle of his head, like that Wojak meme where like the person's head is just caved in in the middle and he just has to like take time to regenerate his brain and he's just like, I'm a cop. Uh, but either way, we sort of have like the the moment where Croden, despite being the unreliable narrator, you know, attain like shows that he is like a fully sympathetic character because he he number one uh you know his true motivation was rescuing his daughter and wasn't like purely you know uh nefarious and that he uh, uh in in his dialogue with his daughter it shows that he is willing to you know go back to rakar and answer for his crimes you know he's not just trying to escape whatever kind of justice and then uh he has the chance while odo was knocked out to uh escape uh, completely on his own, but he doesn't leave Odo behind because he respects, you know, uh, that Odo is at least some kind of consistent person and he helps get him back onto the uh, runabout. So uh, after all of that, uh, thinking about like morals and emotions and psychology, we get a nice bit of space pew pew at the end of this show. Uh, the, the, the episode really is well-rounded because we get like this nice little space battle where they end up like, you know, getting uh, Akel to blow himself up by intentionally firing a torpedo at like a cloud of, of easily ignitable gas. But, uh, but instead we actually get kind of a happy ending where uh, they, there's a passing um, a Vulcan ship going back towards the Alpha Quadrant. And he just sort of uh, lies to the Vulcan ship that, that Crodin and his daughter are like, uh, uh, rescued from a ship that blew up, and so they're just going to go back to Vulcan and start a new life. And and Odo's Odo is perfectly satisfied with breaking the law, breaking the law, breaking the law, as he just says he'll lie about that they were killed in the firefight. So we kind of get we get a happy ending, and actually Odo smiles for the first time. And then we kind of see that the makeup that Rene Auberjonois wears kind of like isn't designed for him to smile because he gets these very like awkward, like very thick dimples at the corners of his mouth. So with the way it ends, we don't end up learning anything definitive about Odo's species. But what we do learn about him is that he can separate his sense of justice from the word of the law. And as far as justice, though, it ends with a happy ending. but if we maintain that Socratic method and questioning and stay within the realm of philosophy and we think about this from moral philosophy, was this justice that's still up in the air because there's still a question of who was the real antagonist here, right? Because it was a robbery. (laughs) 
yeah, he did murder Akel's brother. Like that, that absolutely is like. <laughs> and not only was it murder, but it was during a robbery where technically the Miradorns were acting in self-defense. And also we know from other Star Trek that all of these guns have a stun setting, but his was set to kill. So this isn't to take anything away from the episode or that it contradicts the episode. It's all actually in line with the episode of questioning things and thinking about things. And so even these actions that the Federation and Odo take, it's still not completely clear that this was also the just thing to do. It's just what he felt as a person in his intuition, what he felt was the right thing to do, but it's up for us to speculate. But I just want to leave that also out there, the question out there that this isn't so black and white. It is much more complicated than this. And if you want to really think back to how this all happened, it was Croden as the antagonist and the Mirrodorn were acting in self-defense. And at the end, they all blew up and died. So it's an interesting one that you have to think about for a while that you could have a lot of discussions about. Yeah, well, how do you like that stone, changelings? Actually, that just reminded me, just like that changeling stone key thing, this whole episode is up in the air. It's constantly shifting where you can't quite put your finger on it. Did they do the right thing? Did they not? Is this real? Is it not? It's constantly changing. So it's the perfect metaphor. Morality is made of goop. <laughs> Good way to sum this up. I mean, so how did you like that stone, changelings? I hope you enjoyed this. If you're listening, if you uh, enjoyed this, stay tuned for uh, next week, which is going to be covering the episode Battle Lines. If you uh, enjoy this show, please uh, give us a follow and support our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash southpawpod. For just as little as $4 a month, you can contribute and get uh, access to our Discord server. And uh, there we're talking about not just Star Trek, but all the things discussed on the other amazing shows in the Southpaw Network, like, you know, Fight Study, where we're talking about mixed martial arts, Pride Never Die, where we're talking about uh, combat sports from an LGBTQ perspective. We got Working Stiff Radio covering uh, pro wrestling. And uh, hey, you know, we also talk about food. Like Southpaw just released a great, the Southpaw Prime uh, just released a great episode about Filipino food. Go get some sisig and listen to that episode and then go post in the South's Law uh, <laughs> uh, channel on our Discord. Uh, but, uh, you know, in the meantime, uh, Sam, do you have any uh, plugs or anything else you want to add at the end before we uh, sign out? Take us out, Maestro. Da-da-da-da.